what I look forward to most uh, is knowing that uh, at the end of the day, I've done some good doing what I do. Uh, it's been said that no man is an island. None goes his way alone. What you put into the lives of others comes back into your own. And every day that passes by, we try to live by that principle. We try to find some way to do something good, whether it's um, in sending flowers as a donation to the Ronald McDonald House, whether it's uh, our partnership with Gilda's Club from Gilda Ravner down in uh, uh, the village, uh, whether it's a whole host of other opportunities that we have to give back, either to our community, the Bowery Mission, any of a number of other shelters or, you know, do-good organizations. We don't have the very, very deepest pockets to be able to donate in the way of money, but where we can help at a gala and help someone shave some expenses or to bring light and sunshine and uh, happiness to somebody who, when they least expect it and nobody's paying attention, that's a very big thing for us. Hi, my name is Ellie Cody, and this is Manhattan Sideways. On today's episode, we spoke with Nick at Starbright Floral on 26th Street. Here's what Betsy Pollaby, founder of Manhattan Sideways, had to say about this business. Nick is the perfect example of the guy who spent years on Wall Street and then gave it all up to follow his passion into the world of flowers. He traveled extensively throughout the U.S. and abroad, becoming an expert, if you will. Visiting Starbright is always a fun experience for me. I love the staff of 75. They're so knowledgeable as well as warm and inviting. But my favorite part is always to walk to the back of the store, which I encourage others to do, and step inside the refrigerator where all the flowers are kept. Nick has an incredible comprehension of the world of marketing and PR and is a terrific resource for one if they're interested when listening to our podcast. Uh, my name is Nick Fatos, and uh, I uh, own a company here in New York called Starbright Floral Design. Right. And when and how did you start Starbright? Well, Starbright started in 1994. I, before my life as a florist, I was on Wall Street for about 15 years, a little bit less, and uh, started as a retail broker. And a combination of events, one of which was that my wife had a small flower shop in Long Island, gave me a new interest and as I like to say, I, when I turned 40, I redeemed myself, and I left the finance world and became a florist. What turned you over? What made you want to switch careers? Well, I actually saw the fun and the interest and the passion that uh, many florists in New York City had because I did a lot of research in the field, and I actually had some clients in Manhattan at the time who were and are florists. And these have be people have become great friends of mine over the years, and uh, I've gotten to know them very, very well. And I saw certain voids that I felt I could market to, and uh, it was the right time for me. I was in a great career in a phenomenal place, but I saw myself as possibly not being... Um, as passionate about it for the next 20 years. I saw it as an industry that I could not see myself remaining into for until I turned 60. I looked at people around me that were sitting at desks and were much, much older than me. 
And I just could not envision myself being in their shoes at their time. And that's what I was looking to avoid. And, you know, not everything is for everybody. And what I do now is probably not for everybody either, but it was for me and I've never looked back. And uh, it's a decision I'm very, very happy that I made. Can you tell me about some of the voids specifically that you saw that you felt like you could fill? Sure. The floral industry, much like many retail industries, particularly here in New York, in Manhattan, are mom and pop businesses, small businesses, successful businesses, but are businesses that generally rely on the consumer to go out and find them. So the outreach from the consumer to the business is always from from the consumer's point of view. Mm -hmm. So there's never really, never has been uh, any um, uh, outward marketing uh, where a florist would go out and try to reach a certain segment of the population. Well, because of my background in marketing and sales, uh, everything I have ever done in my life involved some type of outbound marketing and selling. It was a natural part of me to say that I could come into this industry uh, and I could do something that nobody else was doing at the time and even now, which is cold calling on uh, the human resource department or the event department of very well-known companies and HR departments. And whether it's uh, a company the size of Delta Airlines or Ernst & Young or the United States swim team, we were able to go through and meet with the decision makers and earn the business of that company. So it was a purely B2B play, which is a segment that uh, no other florist in Manhattan was targeting or is targeting even now. Uh, And we built an infrastructure of salespeople with good quality training programs. And that's what we've built on and how we've evolved. Now, what's happened over the years is that for the most part, our client businesses have employees. And those employees find out who we are through the companies that they work with. And the B2B component became a business to consumer component or B2C simply because uh, our clients' employees came to us for their services. So whether we wanted to or not, and you know, we welcomed the opportunity, and without realizing it over the years, we developed a consumer component on top of our business component. And right now that represents probably about 30% of the volume of the business that we do. Mm-hmm. The other 70% is, is back to B2B. And uh, B2B is business to business. Correct? Business to business. Okay. And could you also explain one more term to me, which is cold calling? Can yes. And what that means and what that meant for you specifically? Hi, my name is Nick. And uh, I would like to speak to the person in the human resources department who uh, is in charge of employee benefits and uh, amenities for the employees. Can you tell me who I need to talk to, please? Great. Would that be you? Y- uh, yes, it would. Okay. My name is Nick. Uh, who am I speaking to, please? Uh, this is Ellie. Hi, Ellie. How are you today? I'm great, thanks. How are you, Nick? Great. What can I do for you today? Well, I'm from, uh, I have a company here in New York. It's called Starbright Floral Design. And we're a uh, florist that is dedicated to serving uh, the corporate community. We like to say that we're a corporate and institutional florist. And we help companies like yours write uh, flower policies by which they can serve their employees. So whenever, whenever there's a special occasion within 
your department, whether it's the birth of a baby, an anniversary, a passing of an employee's relative, we'd like to have the opportunity to be there for you and to help you in every way that we can. Is this a service uh, that goes through your department? Are you ultimately the person that's in charge of doing this sort of thing? That would be me. How can I reach you? Well, what I'd like to do is maybe send you some information on our company, a little bit of a press kit, give you an idea of what we do. Uh, And then I'd be more than happy to continue a conversation and see how we can be of service. Great. Thanks so much, Nick. That's cold calling. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) Thanks for the example. That was perfect. (laughs) I'm sold. (laughs) And and just to digress for a moment, what you're doing is developing rapport with people and trying to expand your services in your industry. Um, Over the years... I like to say that we have uh, marketed and we have targeted ourselves uh, to go after business, uh, to go after segments uh, that are not promoted. And one perfect example of that is once back in, I want to say 1995, I went to a bridal trade show, which is a natural place for a florist to be, um, to showcase our flowers and to be amongst hundreds of brides that would attend the show uh, and pass out business cards in the hopes that we would have some business. Well, we built this incredible booth, beautiful flowers all over the place. It was above and beyond anything you could imagine. Uh, But I was stuck between five other florists. So I was standing there pretty much with my hand in the air and, you know, a high-pitched voice that said, pick me. Not a very enthusiastic environment, not where I wanted to be, and I really wanted the day to be over. And what I realized, going back to what I said before, is go where you don't have any competition. Go to where the roads have not been charted. Where do we uh, go now? Where do we market ourselves? A perfect example is the building managers trade show, which takes place on Pier, whatever it is, over on on 57th Street. And uh, we're at the building manager's trade show twice a year. uh, And our booth is between an electrician and a plumber. Okay, And there is no other florist who is at that show. Now, from that show, what we're hoping to get, and we are very successful at it, is to be able to... Uh, talk to building managers about the flowers in the lobbies of the buildings that they manage. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so that and that's a highly qualified, segmented B two B environment for us, uh, working with buildings like that. And if you go into many doorman buildings here in Manhattan right now, you're going to see orchids in the lobbies. You're going to see vases with flowers. You're going to see plants, and converting that business over to us is what the goal of that department is. Right. That's very clever to go to that trade show. (laughs) Can you tell me how big the company is now and how you grew it to that size? (laughs) Well, there's uh, approximately 75 employees. Okay. In terms of dollar volume, we're a little bit over $6 million. Per year? Per year. Mm -hmm. Now... Why that's important is because if you take that number and divide it into about $125 per average transaction, that gives you an idea how many people we serve throughout the entire year. Mm-hmm. I can't do the math fast enough to give you that number right now, but 
that's basically where it is. And it's a, it's a huge, huge population. And there's a lot of support services that go into it. There's uh, five trucks. There, there are 10 designers. There's uh, about 10 members of our team in the customer service area um, on the phones and communicating with clients and electronic means and whatnot. The flower prep section is probably, I would say, another four or five people. Uh, then we have dispatch and, um, you know, the retail component and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. So that's kind of the bubble, the scope of, you know, what the company is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as how we grew it, I can tell you my first Valentine's Day, we started, the company started in September. So Valentine's Day in February fell, what, about six months after that? And when the company started that, that first year, that Valentine's Day, we um, uh, we had 17 orders. I was freaking out. I didn't know how to handle it. And I said, oh, my God, I was not prepared for this rush. Last year, we were in the 1500s. So <laughs> it uh, just to give you an idea of the progression and the realization of who we are and what mm-hmm. we do. I was renting a very, very small room that first year as a trial to see if my concept would even work, and I did not know. Quickly I realized that it did, and oh my gosh, I've got to grow, and i got to buy trucks, and I've got to give people Metro cards so they can make deliveries, and uh, how am I going to do all this? And uh, through it all, it worked out. We have been very, very fortunate, uh, and I want to say that thinking in a positive manner through some very negative situations. Uh, We always tried to find the bright side in everything that we did. And from 1994 to 2019, 2018, we have never had a negative year of growth. So every single year that the company's been around, uh, including the year of 9-11, including uh, whatever depressions, recessions, and uh, financial uh, shortfalls have happened in this country and in our great city, we have never, ever, ever decided to participate in a recession, and we never will. And, And that's really our motto. And I mean, just to give you one example, because I'm probably pretty sure you're going to ask the question, when, uh, when things are not doing so well, uh, we double our marketing efforts. And uh, the reason we do is because we have plenty of spare time. We have nothing else to do. It's slow. Right. So therefore, we're going to go out and outreach to more clients, find new ways to reach mm-hmm. our consumers, and so on and so forth. And not only that, but... Our competitors, if you want to use that term, are pulling back on their marketing because they're scared and they don't want to invest in a time that's not going well. Right. Okay? So it becomes a self-fulfilled prophecy mm-hmm. where, oh my God, there's a recession, therefore I'm going to have a bad year, therefore the bad year actually happens. 9-11 came around and, you know, it was a very sad time for our city and we did as much as we could and we participated in the cleanup and we're very, very honored with what we did for the Red Cross and the relief centers that were set up and so on and so forth. But purely from a marketing standpoint, the one thing that we did do, 9-11 happened in September and we said, okay, now who's going to restaurants now? Who's going out to eat? Who's spending money? Nobody, Right. Okay, so what's going to happen to all our restaurant accounts? What's going to happen to our hotel accounts? People are going to start cutting back, and the weekly flowers that go to these venues um, are no longer going to be, they're going to cancel their orders. So before they went out and canceled their orders, uh, we went to all those accounts, and we said, we're going to give you your flowers for free until the end of the year. 
We know that you're going through hard times. Wow. We want your place to, you've been so loyal to us for all this time. Uh, and we want you to be, you know, to be as presentable as possible. We don't want anything to change just because the times are not what we want them to be. And in January, okay, hopefully you've seen a turn for the better. Okay, and we can continue, or then you can evaluate on what to do. But what happened? We stopped the hemorrhaging uh, of business, cutting off the line, and whatever we gave away, it wasn't a lot, and nobody canceled their account, and nobody went to someone else, whereas if we let these people just cancel, in January, whenever they had money, what's the guarantee? They would come back to us, almost zero. Right. Yeah. And so we preserved all of that business for the future. Mm -hmm. okay. And uh, so that was a, a very, very strong outcome mm -hmm. uh, from really a very negative situation, turning it into something a little bit more positive mm -hmm. uh, and something that had legs, as one would say, in the, in the longer term. And, and really, that's, I guess, how we've grown the company. And by building a brand that is reputation-based, by being true to our word and understanding the belief and the premise that you're as good as the promises that you make. And if you're reliable and trustworthy, people will not give up on you. Mm -hmm. And that's led to our growth. What has the hiring process looked like? How do you choose your team members in an, an environment where it's so important that you have a good reputation? Well, it, it, it's cultural. And the one thing that I'm very, very proud of is that the people who come to work with us tend to want to stay with us. We have never, because we haven't had downturns, we've never had layoffs. We don't cut hours during slower times. We know that January, which is a slower period in our industry, the rent for our employees is the same as it is in May, and gasoline costs the same amount of money all year round. Uh, if it's going anywhere, it's going up. So we don't hire seasonal, and we don't flex our hours and ask people to take weeks upon weeks off or you know cut their hours in half and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. By creating a stable work environment, people want to work with us. And we've never had a hard time recruiting because of our reputation. And one of our designers has been with us since 1996. And he was 21, 22 years old at the time when he was hired. He was obviously a very, very junior designer. Wasn't even a designer. But he's been with us ever since. Mm -hmm. And he, he's a leader on the team. Now what's happened over those years is there's many, many examples of people who just don't leave the most transient part of our population, believe it or not, is college students. And I say that with a great deal of pride because there have been 13 college degrees earned at Starbright, kids, if you will, who started with us as a way to make part-time money, persons who would work either on weekends or evenings or whenever they could, summertime, breaks, and put, them th put themselves through school. They're on in their careers. One works for the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, another one is a teacher in an elementary school in Chinatown. And others are spread all over the country doing all kinds of other great things. There's a PR agent in uh, Los Angeles who went to FIT who worked with us uh, all the way through college. And uh, there's many, many stories like that. So, and, and when you bring in that kind of environment, 
People just get absorbed into it and they become a part of it. I don't want to paint it in a negative way, but if someone comes on board and they can't fit into that, it's almost like they walked into a tornado, but a good tornado, and they either adapt and they become a part of it or they move on. Mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, whether it's because of who we are, whether it's because of the environment making the person a positive person and seeing the best in everybody, we don't have many examples where after two or three weeks, you know, we would consistently lose people. And I am a fairly good judge of character, and I can tell you right now that if you would like a job, you're hired. <laughs> Great, thanks. <laughs> See you tomorrow. And you, and you would fit right in. <laughs> um, I, oh, I wanted to ask, does your wife help with the business? Um, because you, you mentioned that she had a, a florist. Yes, um, yes. Is she involved? Well, yes. Uh, it is a family-owned business. Uh, and we take a great deal of pride in our family. Um, and uh, my, uh, my wife uh, was extremely involved in the beginning years of Starbright. There was a little bit of a gap between um, her time in her shop in Long Island, the flower parlor, and when Starbright was developed and started. And in the beginning, she was extremely active. And right now she is active, but we kind of take turns a little bit working in different areas and different departments. She'll come in the afternoons and evenings sometimes. She was, she's the one who, I guess, will lay the law in production a little bit more than I will, a little bit more stern. And I say that uh, with a great deal of affection. She will eventually listen to this. <laughs> I do say it with a great deal yeah. of, uh, of affection and meaning that, uh, you know, it, it is a family business and my son came into the business and he's been a part, Stephen's been a part of the business now for the last decade and he takes uh, a bigger role and a bigger lead every single day from the day before. That being said, where do you see the future of the business? We're at a little bit of a crossroads right now, a good crossroads, because if I had another 30 years at the helm, I know what I would do, okay? I also know that I don't want to be at the helm for the next 30 years. It's Steven's turn, and we're developing a plan of how the company is going to grow, how it's going to sustain itself, what methods we're going to use, to go into phase two, if you will. And, uh, is phase two Stephen phase, or is that still going to be your phase? No, it, uh, every day it becomes more and more Stephen. And basically what is happening is that we are at a point right now where um, he has taken over more of the day-to-day uh, -day operational duties, and my role is shrinking to more and more marketing. Now, marketing is my passion, so I don't mind that at all. And the one thing that we're both committed to is that it will be a uh, one-location company for the foreseeable future. Adding locations, whether they're in other parts of the city or in other cities, causes a great deal of loss of control. And you, what your eyes can't see, you don't know what's going on. What has been your favorite part of owning Starbright? 
I'm going to go back to a story in the early days of the company, uh, and it still holds true to this day. But in the early days, I had a very long commute living in Long Island. And when Stephen was still in college, we would, depending on the day of the week and depending on his schedule, he would come in with me and we would drive together. And uh, we're stuck in traffic somewhere in the middle of Long Island on probably the LIE. And as we're sitting there laughing and talking and having the time of our lives, and he's about 22, 23, and I'm about twice that. And, you know, we're, we're just really living it up. And for one moment, and the car must have been going about five miles an hour at the most, I said, Stephen, look around at all the cars and all the drivers that are around us right now, eight o'clock in the morning now. Everybody is wearing a frown and they're miserable. And there's not one happy face around us. And yet think of what a great time we're having on our way to work. Well, that's my favorite moment and my favorite memory of Starbright because anybody who is able to find what they're most passionate about and looks forward to going where they're going to spend the next 10 hours of their day and is excited about that is a very, very fortunate person. And it takes a lot to get there. It's not something that just shows up on its own. Being able to find that passion, being able to enjoy what you do, being able to be happy at it, it says a lot about what you're doing. Uh, and then the kicker to be able to make money doing it and to be able to feed your family and to be able to sustain a respectable lifestyle. Nothing lavish, just respectable. And to know that uh, right now while we're sitting here having this conversation, because I decided I no longer wanted to be a stockbroker, 75 people are able to have their families well taken care of and um, earn a living wage, uh, which is important to me. And they are at work right now knowing that just because Valentine's Day is over, they're not going to have their hours cut and they're not going to be laid off. Yeah. And that's important. And the fact that we can do that gives me a great deal of pride. Can you explain to me how you believe flowers benefit people? Absolutely. Lives? <laughs> I will absolutely do that. There have been numerous studies done at the university level of how having flowers in one's home bring calmness to the environment and peace and give us uh, thoughts and think of how beautiful and big the smile is that a person actually has when someone surprises them with flowers. It could be a romantic interest, but it doesn't have to be. It could be a mother to a child or the other way around, or it could be a sibling, or it could be a stranger. We participate in a program by every uh, October, and we call it Pedal It Forward. And in Pedal It Forward, what we're doing is we're actually giving people on the street, random people that we don't know, a free bouquet. We're actually giving everybody two bouquets, and we're asking people, keep one for yourself and give the other one to somebody else and make somebody's day. And, uh, Do you so, need volunteers for that? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <All> right. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. See you and then. <laughs> and uh, we've given away as many as 10,000 bouquets wow. 
in a, in a single day. And we have worked giving away flowers down 6th Avenue in uh, the area around Radio City, all the way down to Union Square, and so on and so forth. And there's studies upon studies that have been done at the university level that back up the emotional supportive value of what flowers do to one's psyche. That's why you see them in lobbies of hotels, in restaurants, uh, in, uh, in offices, uh, in waiting areas. I know my dentist has an orchid that stares me in the face every time I sit in the chair for a new root canal. That orchid's supposed to make me feel good. (laughs) Um, That one uh, might need some buddies. But but, but I'll take it a step further, though, and and I really believe this, and I I don't often say things that are not true, but I'm going to say this because I believe that somewhere there is a study about this. I just can't pinpoint it. And so I'm going to talk as though the study exists, even though it really doesn't, (laughs) full disclosure. There ought to be a study that proves if a person gives, sends someone flowers and that person receives them unexpectedly, yes, you're making that person's day. Yes, that person feels good. But now think of the thank you, think of the phone call, think of the screaming elation that that person is going to express to the person who gave them the flowers when they speak on the phone, okay? And think of how good the sender of that bouquet feels because they made someone else's day. Mm-hmm. Okay. In fact, there are research studies, not on flowers specifically, okay. but there are research studies that show how much acts of kindness mm-hmm. contribute to people's overall happiness. There so you go. that backs it up because I would say that giving someone a bouquet is definitely an act of kindness. There so you go. I think you're good. I don't think you have to fund the research study. <laughs> okay, fantastic. <laughs> so but so I, I do believe that in an, in many many different ways flowers express feelings emotions and make us better who we are and how we do it mm-hmm. could you tell me where you get your products where you get the flowers because obviously in a, you know winter in new york they're not popping up from the yeah. sidewalks. Uh, yeah, and they won't let us go pick them on the median of Park yeah. Avenue no. when they grow. Uh, <laughs> it's not very nice so, of them. No. no. We source from all corners of the world. Just to give you an example, our flowers come from Holland. They come from New Zealand. And the seasons are exact opposite, so when something is not growing in Holland, it's growing in New Zealand or vice versa. A lot of our roses come from Ecuador. Uh, and then uh, we also source a great deal of American product. And uh, within that product, we have many, many floral varieties that come to us from California. The drought has affected that a little bit, and also from Florida. But there's an interesting story that I like to tell with how the, uh, the seasons change and the, the weather patterns change, and one flower in specific, peonies, and how we source them because what happens is that uh, peonies start growing in North Carolina around the middle of, I would say, late March. And depending on how cold the spring is, they will continue to come from that region for a period of time. But as spring warms up, the blooms will blow open and the harvest has ended. And, And the harvest will continually move to the north 
okay? And it will actually, peonies will start, let's say, in the middle of March in, um, uh, in North Carolina, and they will end in the middle of July somewhere in Vermont. Uh, wow. So it's a ge- geographic progression where the flower actually moves. And it's only a couple of weeks in you know, each region, and it just boom, 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 just flies up. And this year we're hearing that uh, we're actually going to have peonies in the middle of the summer coming from Alaska, which will be really cool because then come fall, we start getting peonies from uh, Chile. So it so it shifts it, back down again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it becomes a it's becoming a year round flower. Wow. Uh, the Chilean peonies just went out of season probably about two three weeks ago. So now we're waiting. Okay, and there's this little lull for about six weeks, mm-hmm. and then we're going to go into North Carolina probably at the end of uh, uh, March or so, and that all depends on uh, uh, Punxsutawney Phil and uh, you know what the uh, groundhog says. Right, of course. <laughs> Which it's supposed to be in early of spring, course. but Eli's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me tell you, I'm happy to hear that because peonies are my favorite flower. So awesome. I'm, I'm, that's good news. <laughs> Terrific. Um, how much do you consider sustainability in your business practices? A lot. A lot. It's a very, very important part of what we do. And right now we're actually researching. Nobody in New York is doing it right now. And uh, we're, but we are researching the um, the possibility of composting all our waste, and we can reach a uh, zero waste environment in our business. We uh, we do right now. We're doing it with several different ways. Well, for one thing, we use a lot of cardboard, and the cardboard we use has to be. Uh, of a certain recyclability and so on and so forth. We're getting away from cellophane wrap, uh, which is a very high petroleum content product, and moving more to tissue and you know paper. And uh, There's so much good product out there, there's no reason to, to consider anything else. But going beyond that, we, uh, we also tell our clients that uh, you know, we put little stickers on our packages that uh, if you bring back the vase, you get a certain benefit or, you know, give us back the vase so we can we can repurpose it and we'll give you a free bouquet of flowers, you know, that type mm-hmm. of thing. So it's, and we're trying to keep that cycle going. And the goal there is turning it into a public presentation of a responsible corporate citizen. And I don't want to say, use the word taking advantage of it, but being able to use it in a marketing sense, the person, because that's how the ultimate sustainability is, because if I can't sustain myself as a business, how am I going to be able to be a sustainable business and responsible for anything else? Right. So the two have to go together. And in order to address that second issue, our goal is the person who received the flowers to now become a customer. And how? what's a better way to make them a customer and ask them to be a customer, bring us back your vase and we're going to give you free flowers. Right. Okay. Well, guess what? The next time, you know, I, I want them to think of us the next time they think of flowers. And, you know, my, my favorite analogy to explain that is years and years ago when I was growing up, um, the, um, there used to be advertisements for an airline called Eastern Airlines. Uh, and Eastern used to fly to Florida a lot from New York, and it was the official uh, official airline of Disney World. And there was a marketing connection between the two. Uh, and uh, But if you ever thought of 
flying, and if you thought of flying to Florida, you immediately thought of Eastern, and you immediately thought of going to Disney. And if you thought of going to Disney, you would, and the two became interchangeable. Well, playing off of that, we're the official florist of the city that never sleeps. And now the city has not called us that, but we have taken the uh, the approach that, hey, this is our town, this is our city. We've been here for 25 years. The city never sleeps. We never do either. And we want to do some good. Tell me why you've chosen to have a business here specifically and the connection that you feel to the community. Sure. I, I can tell you that New York is unique. It's a great place to be, a great place to, to build anything that you want to be. And people who have not experienced our great city feel like it's a rough place, think that it's a place where it's hard to make it. I believe that nothing could be further from the truth. There is so much opportunity here that I, I, I take a little bit of an opposite approach. And I say that if uh, you can't make it in New York, you really can't make it anywhere else. And that it's a lot easier to succeed here because of the amount of opportunities and the amount of people that are here and the amount of support groups and the, and, and the, and the environment that is here to be able to craft whatever it is that you want. While I'm sure that in any of the top 50 markets in the United States, I could probably repeat my model and do what we do here somewhere else. I don't believe I could do it as easily, even though it's been rough. I don't believe that anywhere else it could be done as easily as it could be done here. I do believe that New York offers some extreme benefits, one of which in a B2B environment, as I told you before that we're in, I, uh, I feel that the number of businesses per capita within walking distance of anything is not replicated anywhere else. You cannot name another city that has as much vibrant commerce within such a small amount of land anywhere in the world. And uh, so that that's something. I find the city to be welcoming. I find it to be hospitable. I find it to be a non-judgmental city and a city that uh, that's a great place to be who you are no matter who you are. And I had the privilege a whole bunch of years ago, I don't remember how many, but it wasn't maybe within the last decade, on the one-year anniversary of the Marriage Equality Act, I was uh, downtown in front of City Hall uh, sharing a microphone with Mayor Bloomberg, celebrating the moment and the day. And the reason I was invited to speak was to endorse to uh, amplify the benefits of what the Marriage Equality Act did for small family-owned businesses in New York. Because at the time, we were pioneers as a city and as a state. So people from all over the country would come here to get married. They couldn't get married in their own state. And when that happened, our taxi cabs filled up, our hotels filled up, Restaurants had more customers. Florists, whether it was me or anybody else, had to make more flowers. And at every level, commerce exceeded all expectations Okay, because of this one simple uh, change. And New York City is very unique in its way of being able to take advantage of unique opportunities. And there's always going to be something that starts here and makes a spectacular uh, trend-setting moment that takes off worldwide. And mm -hmm. I can think of no better example than that. Mm -hmm. And so 
I guess what I hear you saying is that it begins as a positive experience for the market, but what that leads to is what is most important, you know, that that's Absolutely. a sign of... Absolutely, and far, something far greater and unimaginable uh, and truly unpredictable yeah. uh, within the span of a generation or of a lifetime. What are some things that folks listening might not know about flowers or the flower industry in general? Well, I can tell you that one of the surprises that I uh, encountered after a certain amount of years, uh, I got invited to go to Holland to visit some of our suppliers. And I got to see a behind-the-scenes look at the most remarkable operation that you can possibly imagine. First, we start with a, um, uh, an auction market that resembles the New York Stock Exchange. And they're auctioning off product that will be dead within a week. So here you have a live auction that is depending on sub supply and demand. It is completely, completely market-based. And the product that is being auctioned will travel within the next 12 hours to all corners of the world. Wow. Okay. Okay. And, and it all starts from there. Now, what's interesting about that is that you, you take a step back from the auction, and we're talking about production houses that probably are the size of Chelsea under one roof, okay? And carriages and trucks and chains that are carrying, you know, there's one driver and there's 20 carts behind them, and you're just going all over. They know where they're going, but nobody else does. And then you go away from there, and the efficiency of the operation is so incredible that they have runways in the middle of the flower fields. So, wow. so, you, so there's a plane, a uh, cargo plane, uh, that starts out on a runway, and there are, um, there are flowers being cut, packaged on conveyor belts, and headed towards the uh, belly of the plane, okay, while the plane is moving at a very, very slow speed. Okay, and everything is mechanically organized to happen at a certain moment. And as soon as the day's work is done, that plane takes off, and eight hours later, it's in New York. That's incredible. And, and, and while we know what product we've ordered that is on that flight, the goal is to sell it before it lands. Uh -huh. So that way, we don't have any perishability in our product. Right. So when you think of, you know, the amount of joy that goes into people's lives and what it takes to get it there, it's a spectacular chain of events that really has to take place and they have to be perfect. Now, the interesting thing, and I was reading this recently, and don't quote me on the dollar amount, okay, but I'm not far off. If I'm off, I'm off by pennies. But I read a study, okay, and this is a true study, that uh, a single rose and I think the year was like 1895, but I could be off by a year uh -huh. or two, cost $4.25 on Valentine's Day. In today's dollars, that same rose, one rose, cost something like $125. What? Yes. 
So what has happened is that the efficiencies of the markets, okay, and think of what transport was in the 1800s, okay, the flower market that's here on 28th Street existed, but everything got delivered by horse and buggy. Right. Okay? And think of the efficiencies and where did those flowers come from? If they came from anywhere farther than Pennsylvania, they died before they got here. There were no airplanes transferring mm-hmm. fl- transporting flowers. There were no tractor trailers coming up from uh, Miami with flowers that had been flown in from Ecuador. No. Nope. Okay? So, you know, the inefficiencies of the market and the inefficiencies of the transport made the product that expensive. And and my point is that, you know, the evolution, the time, the uh, the way we are uh, able to take care of our own efficiencies. I've seen changes in our industry because of the Internet. Not only are those changes affecting the consumer uh, and the consumer's buying habits, and that's a great thing, but they're also affecting my buying habits. And as a company where we purchase from, what we purchase, what our savings are, and what part of those savings we can pass on to our consumer. Can you tell me um, more about your experiences both traveling to see suppliers and how your experiences outside of New York and outside of the U.S. have informed your business decisions? Well, travel is something I dearly, dearly enjoy, and I've visited many, many places, some by plane, some by by automobile, and uh, my favorite is by motorcycle. And uh, I've seen a good 70% of the United States on a bike. And some of my greatest experiences are in Southern California with the succulents and the cacti and some of the uh, product that comes back to New York. Some of it cut flower and some of it not. That, that is just amazing and it's beautiful. But beyond that, I would love to be able to find the time to visit on location. And I've been invited particularly to Ecuador and uh, I'm sure that I could weasel my way to New Zealand as well. <laughs> the question is finding the time and being able to pull the two together. Mm-hmm. But the reality for me is that if when the opportunities come up, I will not allow... Uh, I will not pass it on to somebody else. This is something I'm going to do for me, uh, and I will be the traveling person on the Starbright team. I do go to Greece quite often. It's uh, my little corner. It's my little paradise. And when I'm there, I try to combine it with some type of exposure trip where I get to learn about something that I did not know before. One of my favorites that's coming up, and I haven't planned it yet, but I know it's going to happen, is that the Dutch are uniquely qualified to develop their brand all over the world and to grow flowers in Central Africa. And there's a lot of product starting to come from those regions. The Dutch are involved in it. And I want to go there and learn about it. Mm-hmm. South Sudan, Nairobi, uh, they, I, definitely in South Africa. And uh, so there's something coming out of there. We get Gerbera daisies from Israel, uh, which I absolutely would love to go to. Sanremo in Italy, which is uh, on the coast and not far from both France and uh, Monte Carlo. It's an area that I have visited on several occasions, and it's absolutely gorgeous. And I take advantage of those kinds of opportunities every chance that I get. And as I said, Greece is my little corner of paradise. I go there to meditate and think of things that I can say when I come on shows like yours. (laughs) 
And you grew up in Greece, right? I did. I did. Yeah, I uh, was born in California and raised just outside of Athens, then came back to the States to go to school, Mm -hmm. high school and college, actually, in uh, Florida. And my business and family life uh, landed me in New York. I traveled a lot up until the time I was about, uh, I guess, about 25 when I started my family. And I traveled hardly at all through the years of my family and, you know, other than family vacations, that's very, very typical. Mm -hmm. And now that it's, uh, now that my wife and I are empty nesters, we're trying to take care of every opportunity we can to travel as much as possible. Nick, what do you know about the history of the plant district in New York? Well, the, uh, it's a very, very interesting history and it's a very long history. I came to New York in 1981 and when I came here just to give you a perspective. I wasn't in this business, as I'd said to you earlier. And when I came here, I'd heard about the flower district and uh, the plant district, and I wanted to buy a bonsai for my wife. So after work downtown, on my way home, Woodside, Queens, I stopped on 6th Avenue, and the district stretched on 6th Avenue, 1981, from about 26th Street to about 30th Street. It also stretched from 7th Avenue, maybe stretching a little bit towards 8th, definitely on 28th Street all the way down to Broadway. And uh, so it was a lot bigger than it is now. In fact, I can tell you that where the... uh, I can tell you that uh, where the Eventi Hotel is right now on 6th Avenue, that hotel used to be a two-story bonsai emporium. Okay. No way. And, because, and I remember that because I actually bought a bonsai there. Right. But the purveyors were family-owned businesses that were passed down from generations. And the only place where one would buy their wholesale flowers if they were a florist in New York or their plants was the 28th Street Flower District. And it served all of the florists in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, probably parts of Jersey. I know florists in Long Island who shop there, certainly Staten Island and beyond. And what had happened was these businesses and a couple of names that I can throw out there that are no longer a part of the district and have sold out and their spaces are now either high-end restaurants or hotels or whatever else they are. The uh, Vlahos family... They sold out their space. It was a very, very successful flower wholesale firm. And now it's a restaurant and nightclub. There was another family called the Manconi family who owned half the block. One other family whose name escapes me. And after many, many generations, they moved to the Bronx. And they put together uh, wrapped bouquets on order for uh, supermarkets. And that's their entire business model. It used to not be, but that's what it is now. But The district got its roots. It was a place where people congregated in the late 1800s from the stories that I hear. And everything back then was markets. And everybody went to the fish market if they wanted to buy fish. Everybody went to the meat market in the meatpacking district if they wanted to buy meats for their restaurants. And the oldest steakhouse in New York is in the meatpacking district and it's thriving still today. And everybody came to 28th Street when they wanted to buy flowers. There's the garment district. There used to be the printing district on VC Street in downtown. And all the financial district. 
and everything maybe has become a little bit decentralized now, but the floral, the flower district, the flower market was a big part of the uh, fabric of our city from the mid-1800s and on. Surprisingly, and this is a lot of fun and something that I always am excited to talk about, uh, is that uh, New York City is a phenomenal destination for elopements and out-of-town weddings. You would not even imagine how many people come to New York from Europe to get married, from other parts of the United States, from South America. And I, I happened to be, and I'd heard about this because I didn't know about it at the time, but if you go on Google and Google something, it gives you results based on the geography or where you're located at the moment. And somebody told me, and I happened to be in Heathrow Airport in London, to Google destination wedding flowers in New York City. And I did. And they told me a long time ago, so I happened to be at the airport, I remembered it, and I hit it on my laptop, and we came up at the top, okay? And what happened, which we did not even know about, is TripAdvisor and a lot of the other websites that gear towards the traveler, okay? On the wedding side of the business, driving traffic to New York City in our category, we're at the top of the heap. And, and it was a pretty exciting moment for me. Do you use social media? We do use social media. It's a big component of what we do. And there are debates about the efficiencies of the social media aspect of any marketing. And one does not really know how big its tentacles are or how long they will last. There's a lot of studies, there's a lot of controversies, and there's a lot of theories. What I know is that you dare not be not active. You must be there. Mm. And you must put your best put, foot forward. And it's a great channel, whether it's uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, Twitter, it doesn't matter, Pinterest. Uh, through all of your social media channels, you need to have a consistent and unique presentation both on terms of whatever your qualities are, whatever your whatever points differentiate you from everybody else, but most importantly, showing yourself. And, and I will say, and by the way, you can find us anywhere on social media. And uh, my advice to anybody who has any kind of uh, social media presence, make sure that your social media address is the same on all channels. Don't have a different address on Facebook than you have on Twitter, than you have on Instagram. They could all be the exact same. And ours is Starbright NYC, at Starbright NYC. But what I, what I would say more importantly than just being a responsible social media citizen is uh, that if you're going to protect your brand, if you're going to drive your customers to flawless executions of whatever it is that you do, you must, must, must pay dear, dear attention 
to your reviews and the review sites. Whichever review sites your ten customers tend to go to most, if you're a bar or restaurant, I guess they're going to go to Yelp. If you're uh, a bridal-type company uh, that caters to that industry, maybe The Knot or you know whatever, whatever else, it doesn't matter. But you want to make sure that your reviews are pristine and you want to make sure that you have you protect your brand online and treat every single customer that walks through your door with the utmost of respect and make sure that if if not everybody writes a review but if they were to write a review make sure that they leave happy and pleased and that they would write what you want them to write mm-hmm. Do you have any other tips for business owners or potential business owners, maybe outside of social media? Yeah. In fact, one of these days, I'm going to write a book about it. (laughs) And it actually is a goal of mine to talk to prospective business owners and startups and companies that are just starting, some of it on a volunteer basis. But the one thing that I would say above everything else is that as a business owner, if you're just now starting out, be prepared to and be willing to fail. You're not gonna get it right the first time. Nobody ever does. Without failure, there's no learning. And without mistakes, there's no opportunity to get it right. Nobody goes down the pathway of entrepreneurship or any other, any other aspect of life gets it right every single time. You're not going to leave your home no matter where you live and drive through traffic for 50 miles and never hit a red light. It just won't happen. And, uh, you know, you got to look at those red lights as pauses, as positives, as opportunities to get it right, as opportunities to regroup. I did not go to college thinking I was going to be a florist. Okay. I did not go to college thinking I was going to be this happy at this age doing what I'm doing and envisioning my life being what it is. But I would say that for anybody that is starting out, for anybody that is doing something new for the first time, no matter what age group, what age category you're in, no matter whether it's business-related or not, unless you put yourself out there willing to fail, okay, you're not giving yourself any opportunities to succeed. So yeah, if I was to say something, that'd be it. First of all, I want to thank everybody for uh, listening to this podcast and for being a part of this program. And I really, really enjoyed being here and talking about my life as a florist. But if you're walking down 26th Street and you see that sandwich board that's out there, Uh, Every day it has a different name. It's right outside our store, and it says that if your name today is Carol, tomorrow if your name is Mike, and there's any random different name on any day, you're welcome to come in and get a free bouquet. Well, that's taken off on social media. It's, It's got its own following, and people walk by every day to see if their name's on there or to tag us and send the picture of the sandwich board to somebody to come by, a friend to get flowers, who happens to be Tom, Carol, or Mike. Well, if you come in, okay, never mind what the sandwich board says, never mind what the day's name is, but if you come in and say that you heard the Manhattan Sideways podcast about this story, okay, uh, and you mentioned Manhattan Sideways specifically, 
to any employee, okay, and scream it at the top of your lungs if you want to, or whisper, it doesn't matter, you're gonna get the same free bouquet, the same complimentary flowers that the person whose name is on the board on the outside. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Ellie Cody, and this has been an interview by Manhattan Sideways. If you'd like to learn more about this particular business or to discover and read about thousands of other fascinating small businesses on the side streets of Manhattan, please visit our website, sideways.nyc, and of course, follow us on Instagram and Facebook, at NYSideways.